Hey, Numbers. Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. It was a prophecy. Before the children of Israel even went into the land, and it was this. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. And how fitting that a wise man of his day, called a wise man, his name was Balaam, predicted that a star, uh, that many centuries later, the magi, other wise men, would follow to find the child born to be the king of Jews. Do you love this season? There's a lot to love about it in the coming of Jesus Christ. But the most important question I can ask you this morning is, do you see him? Some of you are like, yeah, yeah. And others are like, I'm not sure. Uh, Have you seen him? Do you even know what that means? Uh, For those of us who are sitting here who have been graced by God with a vision of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for our sin, we see him, right? Amen? We see him, but the prophecy, even though this is thousands of years old, the prophecy is still being anticipated because we're waiting for what? His return. Yeah, the second coming. And in the days we live, I don't know if I've ever been more excited about it. Please. One of the issues Israel had while they were waiting for Christ to come the first time, we, we just went through that in the book of Judges. Um, don't worry, I'm not going back there. Some of you are like, I was really good, but we don't want to go back there for a while. But one of the issues they had was their impatience. How many of you would say, honestly, you're impatient? I, I would think that that's probably a huge characteristic we all have. They had a desire to control. Okay, not as many hands because you're controlling the situation. Yeah. They had a desire to explain why things were happening the way, the way they were because this isn't what we think God would do or allow. I don't get it. They wanted to be their own masters. So what did they do? What did we read about it? They created gods. Or they took on God. Someone else created said, this, yeah, this explains everything. This will be fine. We'll, we'll do this. It's an issue you and I have too. It hasn't gone away. We are tempted to create gods or to follow other gods. And that's, of course, with a little g, right? Not a big capital G. So here's what I want to do just for really, real quickly here. What are, and this, you get to interact, right? Kind of, you get to talk, but then I cut you off. And you, you get, what are some of the idols that we have created? Give me some examples. Money. Thank you. I heard that. Amen. No. Power. Power. Safety. Safety. I know it's unfair. I've had all week to think about this. You're just going, oh, yeah, what are idols? And, and well, that's my idol. I don't want to say that out loud because somebody will think that's me. Possessions. Possessions. Family. Family. What? Status. Status. Yeah. Food. What? Food. Yes, it is the holiday season. And thank you for bringing that up. Food and gifts can be idols, things that we find our purpose and meaning in for a couple weeks or a day. I got a whole bunch here. <laughs> I had celebrities. We make them up. Yeah. yeah. Um, like, like, why would I want to know what they think about a particular subject? I don't know. We, apparently, we do. 
Fantastic building marvels. In ancient times, it was the pyramids. Today, it's these super hotels like, like the one in Dubai. Have you seen that one? I mean, it's like, it's nuts. But these are monuments to human achievement. Nobody built those and said, look what God enabled us to do. They said, look what we have done. Yeah, yeah, those things. Someone said money, power, uh, seeking influence, um, acceptance. How many likes do I get on Facebook? Pete, that's not an idol. Ah, Yeah, yeah, it is. Security, I heard that one. How about health? That's been kind of a hot topic for two years now. Can it be an idol? Um, How about some aspects of religion? What do you think? Like, our good works. Like, um, a large building, lots of people, rituals that we do. Um, Religious celebrities, we've got those. An idol. Idol. Anything I worship instead of God. An idol. Anything I put my hope in, I put my trust in, I put my heart's desire in, I put my own personal significance in, who I am, over God. There's nothing wrong with desire for things. There's nothing wrong with having money and power and influence and and a, and a thousand likes on Facebook, but I don't put those over God. I don't even, they don't even get close, right? What are, next question, what are some of the idols that you and I create that we will always end up serving? You don't have to answer it. Answer all of them. Every one of them that we just talked about and more. You and I will always always, without question, end up serving them. In the Old Testament prophets, um, God often used this illustration of his kids when they went away from him, which happened a lot, and it's, it's, it's kind of nasty. He said, you know, you guys are being prostitutes. There's a popular uh, Christmas phrase, <laughs> prostitutes. But not because they were being paid and profiting in following these gods and idols that they had created and gone after, but God said, you're, prost- you're worse than prostitutes because you're doing it and you're paying <laughs> to do it. You're paying to be a prostitute from the wealth that I have given you. You are spending that on these things to follow and following other gods. That's, that's, that's how nuts it is. But you see, that's the funny thing about following idols for you and, for you and I too. Uh, that's the deception that we all succumb to. It's so subtle. We don't often see it. But it's the same subtle lie that the tempter um, long ago said to Adam and Eve in the garden when they had all these good things that God had given. They had everything and they sold it for a lie. It is the same lie that he's today for every one of us that they had. It's in Genesis chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. And, and, and Satan says through the serpent to, the, to Eve, make your own way. Go your own way. Grab control of your life. Grab control of your own decisions, uh, your own destiny. And he said, you will surely, not surely die. Do this. 
Even though God said don't do it, do it. You're fine. It's going to be fine. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes are going to be opened and you will be like God. Isn't that what everybody wants? Knowing good and evil. We desire control. It's addictive. And we attempt to control. It's often very feeble, but we attempt to control, and we end up being controlled by whatever it was we desired to control. I mean, somebody wants power. You can put, fill in the blank with whatever you want. I'm going to use power. Somebody desires power, so they accumulate power, however it, they go about getting it. And as they become more powerful, they also, and you watch this in people, they become more intoxicated with their own power, they become bought and sold by power. It controls them, even though they may look really powerful. And we know that all of humanity has exchanged the truth of God for this lie. We know this. We know that all of humanity has instead worshipped themselves. We're really good at that. And ended up serving created things to replace the creator God, who we just don't want to follow. Don't, don't tell me what to do. We create environments. I won't name any of them because it just makes us feel too guilty. We create environments. We create systems. We create religions. We create governments where we are God, where, where we get to call the shots. And we actually, we deserve to call the shots, don't we? I mean, that's what all the commercials are telling me. Romans 1, 25, so clear, so powerful, so good for Christmas. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creation rather than the Creator, who is actually blessed forever, amen. I mean, how ludicrous is this? But it's what we do. Here's my question for us, for those of you who know Jesus Christ as your Savior today, because your faith and your trust is in His death on the cross alone. You, you know this to be true. His blood has cleansed you. Can we, as God's own redeemed kids, take a good gift from God, whatever it is, and use it for our own purposes? And all God's people said, yes. Purposes for looking good, looking successful, looking important, looking more spiritual in front of other people, because that's what matters, apparently. Can even sound Christian teaching, which is a good gift from God, become an idol? You think? When our Christian belief that you get on Sunday in information and study and teaching, and you read God's Word through the week, and you go to small group Bible studies, and you, maybe you watch somebody online, whatever it is, when Christian belief is just information, when Christian belief is not practiced, when, we, when what we believe becomes detached from the substance of God's work and purpose through Jesus Christ's death on the cross, it can become idolatry. Christmas could become idolatry. No surprise, right? Like it or not, you and I can be so subtly 
guilty of this. How so? Well, I got six questions for you. You don't have to answer them out loud. <laughs> you won't want to answer them out loud. Um, and by the way, they may sound familiar because I asked these six questions at another communion service about two or three years ago. Some of you are like, I'm not going to remember this. I don't remember last week, Pete. But anyway, okay, just humor me. Some of you come and say, I remember that question. Do you, number one, do you seek the approval of others in church? Think about it. Number two, do you stew over your spiritual performance and personal holiness more than you steep in what God has already accomplished for you through Jesus Christ? Number three, are you prideful about your biblical knowledge? That you, in a group, I usually know more than everybody else. Do you love to debate all these finer points of theology with others and get angry if you're challenged by their view because it's different than yours? Number five, are you feeling burnt out? <laughs> Everybody says, oh, I got, I got this one. Yeah. Are you feeling burnt out and joyless in your ministry to other people? Like that whole loving your neighbor thing, Pete, it's getting old. It takes so much work. I'm exhausted. Number six, are you uncomfortable being around suffering people? And you find you're quick to recite a Bible verse or say a quick prayer as a way to avoid awkward personal engagement. If you answered yes, or if you answered maybe, or sometimes to any of these, there's a good chance that you may be in the process of taking some of God's good, amazing gifts that those all represent and using them for your own selfish purposes and outlook on life. And this form of idolatry can be really hard to detect, right? Uh, we look for it in other people, which is this whole sad, now the whole other sad story, and not so much in ourselves. And it's hard to detect in your own life because fruit-bearing, getting stuff done, looks pretty good to everybody else. And you know what? Even when you are in this mess, God still does stuff. He's not limited by our unfaithfulness. He's always faithful. And let's face the facts, though it's idolatry. In a few minutes, we're going to take part, as I said in the announcements, in a, in a ritual of worship. It's been detailed. It's been commanded by God Himself. We call it communion. Some call it the Lord's table, the Lord's supper. It's an act that can be a substitute, if you're not careful, for being truly sanctified before God in your heart. It's an act that can be a substitute for truly being obedient to God in your walk during the week. It can be just going through the motions, showing up, open, for us now, taking the top off that thing, popping the wafer in, taking a little sip of juice. It can even become an idol. So in preparation for this living symbol of salvation where we as one lift up the name of Jesus Christ and declare the gospel together by doing it, I want to read you a story. It's not a Christmas story. I'm going to read you a story, and I want to make a few comments. Uh, I've entitled this story from Exodus chapter 32, 
verses 1 to 35, and the verses will not be up on the screen because I'm reading you a story. And you're going to listen, and you're going to meditate, you're going to take it in as best you can. But it is, could religion be a golden calf? Could our religion ever be a golden calf? One of the clearest pictures of idolatry in the entire Bible is this passage we're going to read in Exodus chapter 32. It's the narrative on the golden calf. And when the people saw that Moses delayed, he, he was up there within the mountain speaking with God, getting information to bring back to tell him, what do we do next? And when the people saw that Moses delayed, this is taking too long, in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and they said to him, get up, make us gods that will go before us because this is taking too long. As for this fellow, Mo as for this fellow Moses, how did that even come out of their mouth? The guy who led you out of slavery by God's power just days ago. Anyway, as for this fellow Moses, the man who, oh yeah, he happened to bring us up in the land of Egypt. We do not know what has become of him. He's disappeared on top of the mountain. Aaron then accepted the gold from them, fashioned it with an engraving tool, and made a molten calf. Yeah, that's the ticket. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up from Egypt. How does that connection even happen? It did. And when Aaron saw this, he was so upset. No, he built an altar before the golden calf. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow we're going to have a feast to the Lord. And he used the name Yahweh, God's personal name before the people. So they, so they got up early on the next day and offered up burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink. And before long, they rose up to play. And that's a Hebrew word of saying this was a wild party. Then the Lord God said to Moses, because we're up on the mountain, I have seen this people. Look what a stiff-necked people they are. So now, leave me alone. <laughs> Can you imagine if you were Moses with God? He says, now leave me alone so that my anger can burn against them and I can destroy them and I will make from you a great nation. Like, remember what I did with Abraham, Moses? This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to start all over again. They're gone. You're the guy. You, your wife, and your kids are going to start all over again. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, for evil God led them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger. Relent of this evil against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, Israel, your servants to whom you swore by yourself and told them, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of heaven and all this land that I have spoken <clears throat> about I will give to your descendants and they will inherit it forever. Moses had learned that it's always about God, his honor. It always is. It always has to be. His worship, not ours. God matters. And then the Lord relented over the evil because of Moses' prayer. And when he approached the camp, this is Moses, he saw what God saw. 
And he gets upset. He's like, you know, he's not seeing it. God's telling him, and now he sees it. He's like, when he approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, it's like, it's got to be like, what? I leave you guys. It's like you leave your kids for one night, right? And you come home, it's like, what happened? How did... Moses became extremely angry, and he threw the tablets, those engraved by the finger of God laws on carved out cut stone. And he threw the tablets from his hands and he broke them to pieces at the bottom of the mountain. That'll get your attention. And he took the calf that they had made and he burned it in the fire. He ground it to powder. He poured it out on the water and he made the Israelites drink it. Did your parents ever wash your mouth out with soap? Okay, this is worse than that. I wonder if there's any fiber in gold. Uh, I'm just thinking it through. Moses saw that the people were running wild, for Aaron had let them get completely out of control causing derision from their enemies. So the nations that are around and are, are, are hearing about this commotion are looking, this is Yahweh's kids. This is what they do. This is how they act. So Moses stood at the entrance of the camp and he said, whoever is, on, is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites gathered around him. And he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, each man fasten his sword on his side and go back and forth from the entrance to entrance throughout the camp, and each one kill his brother, his friend, and his neighbor. This is serious. The Levites did what Moses ordered, and on that day about 3,000 men of the people died. 3,000. And Moses said, you have consecrated... To the Levites, you have been consecrated today for the Lord. Each of you was against his son and against his brother, so he has given a blessing to you today. And the next day, Moses said to the people, you have committed a very serious sin. But now I'm going to go back up on that mountain to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement on behalf of your sins. Sound familiar? So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people, just like you said, has committed a very serious sin and they have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive this sin, but if not, wipe me out from your book that you have written. Don't hurt them. Take me. So now go. Lead the people to the place I have spoken to you about, God said. See, my angel will go before you. But on the day that I punish, I will indeed punish them for their sin. This narrative isn't simply a message for pagans, for um, addicts, rebels without a cause. This is for religious folk like you and me. When God looked down from the mountain and found his people that they had crafted the golden calf, God wasn't simply witnessing immoral living and sinful partying and behavior. God saw a people that he had just redeemed 
with spectacular miracles that Hollywood wants to make movies out of, miraculous things that a people, he witnessed a people who had taken his good gifts and used them against him. And while it's not explicitly stated here in the text, the gold that the Israel was using and melting down to make this golden calf was the gold that the Egyptians had given them that we read about earlier as they left. The Egyptians said, please leave, go, go. We can't stand another plague. Go, go, and take all this gold with you. Take our gold, take it, just go, go, go. It was most likely intended for God's purposes later on. That's why he allowed the Egyptians to give it. Later in the narrative, you see that the leftover gold is used for the building of the tabernacle that God has Moses make. It's that, make, it's that place of meeting with God, that, that tent with all the inlaid gold and, and bowls and, and uh, candelabras, the place where he desired to dwell with them. So just think about that for a moment during the season. The Israelites used God's unexpected and undeserved gifts for their own idolatrous purposes. What were they thinking? And that's just the point. They were thinking about their current situation. What's going on today, right now? They were thinking about their current situation regardless of all the past faithfulness and deliverances that God had shown them over and over again or the promised future that he'd get, he, he told them about. Do you ever catch yourself caught up in the moment? And you know, your, your anger, your joy, whatever it is, wells up. It's like spontaneous, doesn't need any encouragement. Something happens, you respond. It's a knee-jerk reaction. And that you... We're less likely to, to stop, take a breath, take a step back to carefully consider what is actually going on. In creating the golden calf, the people had committed high treason. That's why so many of them died. Even though the one true God had always proven himself faithful, they just couldn't wait. They needed a God who met them on their terms, a God of their own choosing, a God that they could control, a God that they could define. And there's the golden calf. It's all a nice, neat package. That golden calf, when you stop to think about it, right, and its place in history, at first it doesn't make a lot of sense. And then you stop to think about it and you think, yeah, we're like that too. It doesn't look like God's coming through. Things aren't working out the way I thought or anticipated they would, so I'm going to take control and I'm going to make something that works for me. So they took the gifts from the real God and they created their own false God who fulfilled their current need. We can be so quick to judge them, like I've, I've been doing, I, I, I realize that, those primitive, control-addicted Israelites. But what we miss is ourselves in the story. Hi, my name's Christian, and I'm a religious addict. <laughs> Someone said that religion can be all about control addiction, and that two of the 
two kinds of religious addiction are um, impression management and escape from sin. And that's why people come to church. That's why people look for certain things when they're looking for a church. Impression management. Religiosity is all about the show. It's smoke and mirrors. It's, sometimes it actually is smoke. And it's, it's, it's just a big show. The impression management is all the trappings of religion. What you see, but not the faith, not the God behind the faith. And like any addiction, religiosity serves as an escape from reality. There are, are people who go to church on Sunday as an escape from reality. Hmm. Are you devastated by the loss of a loved one? The religious addict might just say, God is sovereign. Is God sovereign? Of course He is. But that's probably not what you say in that moment. It's a knee-jerk reflex by which a religious addict means don't feel it, don't think about it, just detach yourself from it because God's in control, and it, why bother even trying to think about it? No, no, no. That's impression management, where we're not going to show that we're broken before others. But religious addiction also involves that second thing, escape from sin. The religious addict escapes the reality of their own sins by justifying their sinful lifestyle through the week by their attendance on church on Sunday. I go to church, took care of it. It's like going to confession, right? Take care of it all. See you next week. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm probably going to do some of those same things this week, but I'll be back. Serving, reading, teaching, praying, adopting the lingo and the moral lifestyle of the particular group of people that you're doing church with. And we call these, we, well, not out loud, but there are sacrifices that we make to gain the God we've created, to gain His favor, to retain our religious standing in the community. Is that why we do what we do? But we are as deceived and as rebellious as the Israelites who are imitating the worship of God through idolatry with a golden calf. They're even combining the two. So let's approach the same idea from one last angle. When you hear the word Pharisee, what's the first thing that pops into your mind? I heard, I heard the H word. Say it loud. Hypocrite. Hypocrite. Um, it's almost become synonymous with hypocrite. Would you ever call someone else a Pharisee? It's a dirty word. And you're like, well, actually, I did. Jesus did that association for us, by the way. That's where it comes from. He made that connection between a Pharisee and a hypocrite. And many Christians, I'm afraid, many of us don't know when we are being hip hypocritical. We just don't know. Identifying our need to appear religious by our spiritual performance, 
or being a Bible know-it-all is difficult because doing religion seems like the right thing to do, doesn't it? I mean, there are things you do. There's things that we, you and I should be doing. But we can be hypocritical in the doing of them. And so you get this tension in the Christian life that the Bible deals with in the New Testament all the time. Am I real or am I fake? Like this morning, how many of us are real? And there are new movements every so often in the church, usually led by disenchanted young, younger people who are driven by a thirst to be authentic, to recover this elusive real deal. And often those seasons can be very good for the church, but often I've also seen them end in the same disillusionment that created them because we're all the same. We can get to the place where our religion, what we practice, feels good to us, looks good to others, but that practice actually offends God, as many of the Old Testament prophets said. And if this is true, if this is possible, if you and I can flirt with being religious addicts and idolaters, then we have a big problem on our hands, and we have a big battle in guarding our hearts from this. We have someone who is better than Moses, who stands in our place. And the good news is when we confess, He is faithful to forgive. 1 John 1, 9 is a verse we should say every day. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And by God's mercy, some of the Hebrews back then were spared for Moses' sake. We read that in the text. But by God's mercy, we Christians today have been spared for Jesus' sake. Colossians 1.13, He delivered us from the power of darkness. This darkness that's all around us, we who know Jesus Christ as our Savior have been delivered from this darkness. And He's transferred us to the kingdom of His Son, which is light, the Son whom He loves. Why did He do this for me? Because I certainly don't deserve it. Because He loves me. Because of His Son. Christ is this great intercessor. He's greater than Moses. Hebrews 7, 25, Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Romans 8, 34, Who is to condemn? It's a rhetorical question, because there's no one who can condemn a child of God. Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. It's ongoing. And not only does He intercede on our behalf and forgive us all of our sin, He restores and He sustains us. He does it through our sanctification, through our transformation into His likeness. Reaching back to Exodus chapter 17 when, when the, the Israelites were thirsty and they said, we need some water. And God said to Moses, hit the rock. Yeah, take, your, take your stick and just hit the rock. And then water came out and they had water. It's like crazy, right? Reaching back to that story, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.4 that the Israelites drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them and that rock was Christ. 
Wow. That gives new meaning to Jesus Christ's encounter with the woman at the well where he tells her that he will give her living, eternal water. You'll never thirst again. And God has called us out of slavery. He has given us eternal freedom through Jesus Christ. We're his treasured possession. And while we can be faithless, he is always faithful. And the idols that you and I are prone to create are created with often unholy sacrifices of his holy gifts. But thanks be to God, he convicts us, he graces us, he offers forgiveness, he offers mercy, and he offers us the cleansing from sin. And his grace is big enough even for Pharisees like Paul and even for Pharisees like you and me. He leads us out. He leads us through. He atones for our sin, and He is going to lead us home. We're going to take communion. This symbol of a reality that I know for many of you in this room, I've heard your testimony. I've heard you give witness very...